Now the scripture lesson from Luke's gospel reading, uh, chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. While Jesus and his disciples were traveling, Jesus entered a village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his message. By contrast, Martha was preoccupied with getting everything ready for their meal. So Martha came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to prepare the table all by myself? Tell her to help me. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part. It won't be taken away from her. Here is a reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Now, I want to move past many of the typical interpretations that you've probably already heard ad nauseum from this familiar story and wrestle with something that I believe most of us miss in this famous tale of two sisters. I'm fairly certain we've all heard Mary and Martha contrasted for their styles. You know, Mary the reflective one, if you identify positively with Mary, or Mary the lazy one, if you're a Martha and identify negatively with her. Or, you know, you've identified, we've heard Martha the workhorse, characterized by, by those who closely relate in a positive manner with, with Martha in this story. And we've heard about Martha the workaholic, characterized by those who prefer to sit still and identify in a negative light with Martha. But you'll notice if you actually just read the story that Jesus doesn't condemn Martha even in the story. And he might not have praised Mary so much, for that matter, if Martha hadn't been so insistent that Mary be just like her. We'll never know for sure how that would have gone. And I don't plan on railing against the evils of being a Martha today, and I don't plan on singing Mary's praises for her stand against workaholism, if you listen to so many other sermons about these, this scripture. But what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to the fact that Mary is breaking traditional, stereotypical female behavior for her day. And not only that, but that Jesus is not only allowing this behavior, but is blessing it, welcoming it from Mary, and even defending it. You see, the very fact that Mary is not up busy physically, doing the work of preparing the meal, setting the table, getting everything in place, is not normal for the people who would have heard this story the first time. Now, the stereotypical expectations, they would have been um, that only the men had the luxury of sitting at the feet of a rabbi, hanging on their every word. The men were the only ones that were normally allowed to spend time with the rabbis or the teachers, and Jesus was one. And so what we miss when we march off too quickly, pitting Mary and, and Martha against one another is a contrast between someone who serves Jesus by way of the sweat of their brow and someone who honors Jesus by the stillness of her frame and listening ear is the fact that Mary was doing something that probably deeply offended Martha and others who may have been watching. Mary was refusing to be treated as less than the men. And Jesus was happy about this. In fact, he spoke up 
for her and, and encouraged her to sit right there and to listen, to do what she pleased, to learn, to interact, just as any man would have been able to do with, without all the negative attention, by the way, from Martha or perhaps others. Does this make Mary a feminist? I don't really know. Or more to the title of my sermon, does this make Jesus a feminist? I'm not really sure this story fits neatly into a modern feminist framework, but I do believe that Jesus, especially as portrayed again and again in Luke's gospel from which we read today, Jesus worked really hard at the full inclusion of women into his ministry and into the broader life of the community, not only including them, but giving them leadership roles. Whereas the norm was to treat women as property, barely a half step above a slave or a servant. And so while the women in our country have it better in many, many regards uh, than, than Mary and Martha might have had it back then, I, I'm fairly certain Jesus would still look over our horizons and say that we have some work to do with equality and the inclusion and full celebration of the gifts of women. Now, this Bible story, it really couldn't come along at a more important time in our shared lives, both as a church and within the broader community, in fact, within the country in which we're living. Because we're coming off a week or so where there's been a lot of noise, as I alluded to in my prayer a moment ago. Most of it centering around the President of the United States of America, who singled out four of his political opponents who happened to be four congresswomen, and also all of them people of color. And while some of them had been outspoken critics and so therefore were political opponents, there were many political opponents over the past weeks who were male who had spoken out and critiqued his political ideas. And, and, and you know, there were plenty of males who were not people of color as well. It's unfortunate. Uh, so many reasons this whole thing is unfortunate. And, you know, political squabbles, they're not unusual. <laughs> they've, they've become extremely commonplace in our country. But what was shocking and completely immoral is that the President of the United States chose these four congresswomen of color and said on his Twitter account that they should go back to the crime-infested countries from which they came. Which, by the way, according to our own laws of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, is a fireable offense doesn't always draw a straight, clear line to the highest office in the land. And then to complicate matters even worse, there was a crowd at one of his political rallies this last week targeting one in particular of these congresswomen saying, send her back. Send her back. The thing is, all four of these congresswomen are U.S. citizens. Three of them were born in the United States of America. One of them a naturalized citizen who's in fact been a naturalized citizen several years longer than President's wife has been a naturalized citizen. But the President didn't stop there, sadly enough. He also said repeatedly that these women don't love our country because, you know, they're his political enemy and that they should, um, well, if they don't love it, they should leave. Now, I have to tell you at this moment, it gives me no pleasure to bring this up. And I have to tell you, this is where chills ran up and down my spine and not the good kind of chills, but haunting, terrifying, cold chills. And I've never been more terrified at any words I've heard come out of a national leader's mouth in my lifetime, because these words, love it 
or leave it, have a very specific history. In the 1960s and 70s, the Ku Klux Klan used the phrase America, love it or leave it, or hey, this is Klan country, love it or leave it. On billboards, in newspaper ads, and radio ads, mostly across the southern United States of America, and they did so to combat the civil rights movement and the women's liberation movement. And these words, love it or leave it, are being received. I, I, see, I don't know the intent of anyone. I can't judge that. But I can tell you that these words have been received by hate groups, by white nationalist groups, and by race-driven hate, uh, hate fellowships and other, uh, other groups as a sign of uh, they have an ally. And so now is the time, dear people of faith, to set aside our partisan bickering. Uh, now is the time to set aside that in favor of Christian unity. Now is the time to pay very close attention to see what happens next, because what happens next may determine the next phase of our journey, not only as people of God, but as people of this country, it's the time that if you see something, you need to say something. The president himself has claimed to be a person who belongs to the Christian faith. And it really is because of that claim that I bring this up, not because of any partisan talking points. I, I couldn't let this pass because of his claim to the Christian faith and not say something to you, uh, you know, even that there's nothing even remotely resembling racism that is a Christian value. There's nothing even remotely resembling sexism, demeaning of women, that is a Christian value. And so I make no judgment on the president's soul or on his intent or even on his policy proposals. Those aren't my business, but the Christian faith is my business. The Christian faith is your business. 1 Peter 4.17 says judgment begins in the house of the Lord. What that means is we're called to look at one another's actions and when they're hurtful, when they demean another human being, we're accountable for those words. If we claim to be a Christian, we don't get to play God as Christians, but what we're called to do is to imitate Jesus, which means calling out harmful behavior when it is carried out by someone who claims to be a part of our family of faith. So the whole ordeal is much bigger than partisan politics. I, I only condemn these remarks not from a political perspective, that's not my concern, but from a moral perspe perspective, from an ethical perspective, from a spiritual perspective, from a purely Christian perspective. Before you see, when I was baptized, I made vows to the church. You probably did too if you were baptized in a mainline church of any kind. And the oldest baptismal vows in one way or another, all say pretty much the same thing. Will you stand against evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? So now's the time to live out our baptismal vows. So the thing is, with power, there comes accountability. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. And while we may not feel too powerful, just as individuals or as the church even sometimes, in a day and age where church, churches are closing and dying and struggling and shrinking, the world is watching us, dear ones, still to see how will we respond to the events of this past week or other situations that arise in the future. The world is watching how we treat one another, in particular how we treat women if we're going to insist that there's a better way than what we've just witnessed this past week or two, we have to offer a better vision, 
a better practice within our lives together. Now, Jesus and Mary, they, they led the way in breaking down gender stereotypes. And, but the thing is, the church has work to do today. I wonder, this is getting really close to home. I wonder how many times we've had a church potluck and all the guys sit around and chat while we wait for the women to do the dishes. We giggle. But is this really any different than the Mary and Martha story? Can we do better? How many times do men act as if we have too much, quote, real work to do to volunteer that much at church? And yet on church boards, not so much at our church, we do a pretty good job here of sharing decision-making between men and women. But across the land, church boards in general are full of men. Some churches, women aren't allowed to serve and, and really only show up to make decisions but, uh, men do, but they never really get their hands dirty doing all the hard, thankless stuff. It's the women who make that happen at churches. We can do better as a church. You know, gender stereotypes, are they're only okay if the person being stereotyped says out loud, it's okay. We demean one another to assume that women should always cook and clean and teach kids and men should always serve on the buildings and grounds committee and fix stuff in our shared lives together. We can do better. We have to do better. Jesus wasn't satisfied with the status quo. And we must advocate for the equality of women and men inside and outside the church. But inside the church, we have to help one another. We can do better. Now, I'm not sure if you saw the news. Uh, this, I think it might have been two weeks ago. But Reverend uh, Dr. Amy Butler, Dr. Uh, Butler served as the first female minister in history, the senior minister, at the Riverside Church which is in New York and is a sister United Church of Christ congregation. She served for the past five years. And the Riverside Church is one of the highest profile churches in the world. And as I said, she was the very first female pastor in its history. And now the Riverside Church has a reputation as one of the most trailblazing, innovative, progressive churches of the whole past century or more. And yet when her five-year contract came up, the church board elected not to renew it. Now these talk like it was mutual. But when you dig a little bit deeper and you know the person as I do, and you know some of the people behind the scenes, what you learn is this is actually a pretty scandalous situation and it doesn't play out well for the church. You see, because Dr. Butler had reported several incidents of one or more male church members being sexually aggressive and inappropriate with her, and the governing body within the church did nothing to investigate these incidents. And the New York Times reported that one of the men in question was a very wealthy doctor and was perhaps one of the largest donors of the church, and this is probably why they didn't follow up on the allegations. Dr. Butler is one of the most talented ministers I've ever had the privilege of knowing. And I'm not only sad for her, and I'm not only sad for Riverside Church, but I'm sad for the church universal because of what has happened, and it is a black mark on our collective witness to the world. In this day and age of social media, many of you probably read about that, and you probably saw a video that was produced uh, uh, not too long ago, or shared widely at least, from the North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church. It had male clergy on the video reading aloud actual comments made to female clergy all over their conference in North Carolina. And they had heard these things routinely from church members as female pastors. Here are some of the things. I can't bear to tell you some of the more graphic ones, but here are some of the things that the, the men tried to read and literally couldn't believe it. Well, you know, pastor, keep in mind these were said to 
female clergy, I can't concentrate on your sermon because you're so pretty. You know, you do a really good job, Pastor, but I think Scripture is more meaningful if it's read with a male voice. Or, you know, Pastor, I can't help it. I just keep picturing you naked underneath your robe. None of you have ever said that to me. <laughs> or how about, you know, if God could speak through a donkey, I guess God could use a woman too. These are actual comments. And there are many that are far too offensive for me to feel comfortable sharing with you. And I have no desire to share anymore because I think you get the picture. There were dozens and dozens of these. And here's the thing. I took the time on my own to ask 10 trusted, longtime friends. I would never have done this to people I barely knew. But 10 longtime trusted female clergy peers, if these kind of comments were something they're familiar with. And every one of them not only agreed to every single one of the things that were on the video, but they said that in several cases they had stories more similar to Dr. Butler's. And in a couple of the cases, churches did nothing to act on it. Church, we have to lead the way and do better. In the Webster Dictionary, feminism is defined as the theory of the political, economic, and social equality of the sexes. Now, by this definition, Jesus may have very well been among the early feminists. Jesus said just a few pages before our scripture lesson today in the fourth chapter of the gospel according to Luke, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So when we doubt women's stories of abuse or mistreatment, we are not liberating women. We are oppressing women, church. When we do not honor the gifts of women, the unique call upon women's lives as leaders among us, we are oppressing women, not liberating women as Jesus intended for us to do. When we perpetuate gender stereotypes like cooking, cleaning, working with kids, and on and on and on, we are oppressing women, church. We're not liberating women to be themselves fully. When we do not make room for women in the pulpit, but only in the classrooms or the kitchens at churches, we are oppressing women, not liberating women. When we do not call out leaders, whether they be pastors, presidents, church boards, who turn a blind eye to harassment or otherwise for demeaning women, and we do not speak up from a Christian perspective, we've chosen the side of the oppressor, not the liberator. As the Archbishop Desmond Tutu has so eloquently said, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have actually chosen the side of the oppressor. And dear church, Jesus was a liberator, not an oppressor. And he expected that his followers would be liberators, not oppressors. And if we're going to err, we must err by taking the sides of the ones who might remotely seem as though they are being oppressed or treated as less than equal, not declare neutrality if there's any doubt. Jesus had disciples who were among his group who were women, and he empowered these women. And these women established alongside him and the other disciples the church as we know it, using their incredible gifts. He honored women's gifts publicly. He carved out space for women to be heard loudly and clearly in his circles. Women funded Jesus' ministry. And Jesus celebrated women by name in a culture that referred to women generically and as property. 
as tools to get the work done the men didn't really want to be bothered with doing. Jesus learned from women. He listened to women and referred to women as examples in the faith and in life and encouraged people to follow those examples. So as I look around this room today, this room is filled with incredible women. We would not have a church today without you, sisters. You are the heart and soul of everything we do. You do the thankless stuff behind the scenes, and in our church, you're leaders at board meetings, and you share your visions and dreams. And my sisters, you are a gift to this fellowship. Your imagination, your gifts, your wisdom, your compassion, your courage that you bring to this fellowship, it is irreplaceable, and I want you to know that. And as a male clergy person, I really don't have to be all that exceptional for you to listen to my voice. Or, or even follow me, I just have to have a microphone because that's the way we've been trained in our society. But I, I want to say while I have the microphone that this, is, this church family is not perfect when it comes to treating you, my dear sisters, as equals. No church family is, but we want to be better. And I hope you hear me, and I hope you'll consider trusting me to tell me when to stand up next to you and when to sit down and let you lead. And I hope that you'll trust me enough to tell me when I need to fight for your equality and when I need to stay out of the way. We can do a better job, church, living as equals. And we must, if we ever want to remotely resemble the beloved community that Jesus dreamed of and died for and left entrusted to those of us who call ourselves the church. May God help us in this journey. It's a work in progress. But it leaves room for progress. Amen.